Hey, well, welcome to uh, opening the box of knowledge. And this uh, episode is with a good friend of mine. We have Mark Titus, and he has a podcast called Save What You Love. Uh, he's a filmmaker. He's a podcaster. He's an activist. He's been uh, a leading activist in the Stop Pebble Mine work. Uh, he did an incredible documentary called The Breach and then followed that up with The Wild. And he's working on the third documentary to finish out his, uh, what do you call that? Trilogy, man. Trilogy. Like Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. So welcome, Mark. It's good to see you, brother. Thanks, Rick. It's such a pleasure to be in Tlingit Ani with you. And uh, it feels like a homecoming to me. I lived here for a good portion of my life. And uh, I think I mentioned coming in inbound with the jet the other day, it was like sunset and there was some light gleaming on the clouds. And then we kind of went into the clouds and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm coming home. This is great. Into torrential downpour. <laughs> and I think Mark's the only one in Juno excited for the rain right now. <laughs> we're, we're a little over it. So, Mark, you know, I, I talked a little bit about some of the things you've done. You've uh, got a really unique history. You started out as a, a sport fish guide, and, you know, that's something you're passionate about is our Alaskan uh, wild salmon. And what what brought you to, you know, becoming this activist and using your skills in these mediums to tell the story? I think, in a word, love. Um I like to talk when I give talks and, and certainly it, it appears in uh, my first film, The Breach, but um, my love and eternal fascination for wild salmon started when I was two. And my dad, who uh, was a migrant from uh, Wisconsin, the great land of Wisconsin, back in the middle of the lower 48 of Turtle Island, was um, lured out to the Pacific Northwest because of the fabled fishing and hunting, which of course, uh, if you look at a shifting baseline has now shifted down and Alaska is pretty much the last place for, for that kind of fabled fishing and hunting. But at the time it was still pretty good. And so my dad, you know, I became my dad's little fishing buddy and, uh, there's a picture of him and me and a 30 pound King salmon that uh, was supposedly my first, and I'm using air quotes, my first king. Um, and what actually <laughs> ended up happening is my dad brought the fish alongside the boat and uh, I had this brand new Snoopy Zebco rig from Fred Meyer, you know, and apparently I uh, chucked it like a harpoon at, <laughs> at the king. Down goes the Zebco Snoopy rod onto the bottom of uh, Nia Bay. And, um, but what I got out of it was this complete fascination and reverence for wild salmon that started at two and has continued to today. Yeah. And you've, you've worked with a lot of uh, our native community, our indigenous community here in Alaska, specifically in Bristol Bay. Mm -hmm. But you know, I know you work with uh, folks like Elena Hurley and others. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's the pebble fight? What is, what's going on there? Sure. Well, Bristol Bay is the last fully intact wild salmon system in North America and arguably on the planet. It, uh, this last year saw nearly 80 million wild sockeye salmon return to its eight major river systems that flow into it. It has fed and empowered the people that have lived there for millennia and folks have thrived there because of that and continue to thrive there because of that. And for the last 30 years or so, because someone came in and found some uh, minerals at the headwaters of Bristol Bay and specifically in the headwaters of the two main arteries of Bristol Bay, the Nushigak River and the Quijak River, they found a huge deposit of copper, gold, and molybdenum, and specifically copper. And um, so for the last several decades, the people that found this and then have subsequently morphed into other ownership groups um, have been after this 
resource, which is about $500 billion in today's dollars worth of uh, minerals. And so um, what do we know? Well, we know looking at history in Europe, the East Coast of North America, the Pacific Northwest, that every time human beings have come into indigenous people's territory and into salmon territory, things have suffered dramatically. And it's come by the nature of turning what was a perfectly wild ecosystem into a, a, uh, an industrial system. And that's exactly what's at stake in Bristol Bay. It's literally turning this wilderness that's perfect the way that it is right now. It doesn't need human, and using air quotes again, human management, human uh, augmentation to make it better. It works perfectly the way that it has for thousands of years where the Yupik, Dena'ina, and Lutik people have thrived. So the current iteration of the extractors of this mineral outfit is, uh, it's an outfit called the, the Pebble Mine. They've made a cute little name out of something that ultimately is a pretty uh, harrowing thought. It's it, They would dig a an open pit that would be uh, as deep and uh, to compare it, it would be as tall as the Space Needle in Seattle. And it would uh, it would require an earthen dam, sorry, that would is as tall as the Space Needle in Seattle to hold back the toxic effluent um, from the tailings that they've produced by digging for the minerals forever. Right. Which is a mighty long time. And yeah. So well, there's your primer. Yeah. So, you know, here in Southeast, we have some pretty grave concerns about, you know, transboundary mines, mines in the headwaters, and they're all on the Canadian side, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we have like the Eunuch and the Taku and the Stikine and among other rivers. We're, we're already seeing major declines in our fish, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, about, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago now, about eight years ago, the Mount Polly mine tail the tailing dam failed right and it wiped out that river right and literally i have uh, friends there who uh really grew up enjoying the the wild salmon and now it's extinct the mount Polly failure wiped it out and i think that's what we're worried about you know with this last vestige of wild salmon pristine high numbers um, that, you know, sustain, like you said, so many people and industry, you know, fisheries is still one of the biggest industries in Alaska and we're all proponents of wild salmon. We don't like farmed fish. We know how dangerous and toxic farm fish is. So, you know, it's no small thing to want to protect the pebble to stop pebble mine. Right. Um, you know, I, I found it funny because we're, we're so divided by politics in this day and age, but, you know, even Donald Trump Jr. went out there and, and tweeted how bad this would be, right? That's right. Yeah, and that's something we took great care to examine in my second film, The Wild, um, was the fact that this is a, uh, this is a resource that is a national treasure for everybody. It, it doesn't distinguish what tribe with a, a lowercase t you associate yourself with in our current political stage. And so, yeah, there's folks that are conservationists and eco warriors and, you know, folks that are salmon nerds like me and you and, and others and, um, tribes and, um, sport fishermen and commercial fishermen, but there there's, there's people that are understanding that this is a resource like no other that's an economic engine it produces over two billion dollars for the u.s economy every summer that it's coming back and thriving uh that's just with the commercial sport fishery that's it's over eighteen thousand jobs so you mentioned two billion dollars and remind me how much the mineral resources are worth well what it current dollars the current projection is that the mineral resources would be worth $500 billion that would primarily be collected by a very tiny percentage of a human population that 
frankly, most of them don't even live in the United States. Well, and it's not a renewable resource. Once it's extracted, it's gone. Correct. So with the wild salmon, if we can protect the Bristol Bay area and make sure that these salmon are returning into perpetuity, that's $2 billion a year, every year. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Open up your spreadsheet and plot that one out. Yeah. And um, where every other salmon run right now is struggling, uh, Bristol Bay is thriving. In fact, it's it's going off the charts. This is literally the highest run ever recorded while commercial fishing has been in, in um, you know, uh, operation and being recorded over the last 125 years. It's astonishing. And it's actually uh, one of the few places where climate change has seemingly augmented the fishery as opposed to had have, you know, catastrophic effects from the outset. And there's some, um, you know, nobody knows exactly why there's some speculation on, on why, and the, the best scientists I know, um, who are working on it, I, I think have some pretty good theories, but point is, I think when you boil all this down, salmon are, a, a bellwether, they're the canary in the coal mine, uh, for where we are as a species, where we are as a global system, the health of our planet. Not only that, they are the lifeblood, as you know, as the uh, Tlingit Haida people have known for ever, yeah. that they are the center of food, spiritual, cultural, commerce, all of it. And they don't need a whole lot. They need clear, cold water and gravel and spawning habitat, and, and they can thrive. And I mean, one one prime example of this is the Elwha River, where in my home state of Washington, where I currently live, uh, had two illegal salmon blocking dams that were built in 1912 um, to power this guy's sawmill, basically, which was <laughs> also in a circular fashion, chopping down the trees that were providing shade around the rivers and, you know, just pretty much a bad situation all the way around. But um, that river and that system was the lifeblood and the cultural and the food system for the Elwha people, the strong people. Right. And that was gone for a hundred years. Uh, and it was a deep and lasting trauma. Yeah. And now the, the, the punchline to this is in, our, in the breach in our first film, we examine what it took to restore this system and pull out these dams, which in its case was $350 million, 40 years of effort from hundreds of people led by the Elwha people. And um, what's happened now though, is because this river system has 80 miles that go up into a national park, it hasn't been clear cut, it's pristine habitat. And those salmon have come back and they are thriving again. Right, I think I think that's just proof and evidence, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think they call it the salmon wars and um, there's such a deep history there with those dams throughout Washington and Oregon. Right. And they're showing that once you remove those dams, restore the habitat, the fish come back. That's right. And and I think that's what um, we really need to be cognizant of. And you, you mentioned how they're the canary in the mine. And, you know, we see it in our own region. The, the fishing has been pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Commercial fishing, subsistence, um, you know. There, there are, of course, still systems where you can go and you can get uh, large amounts of certain species, silvers, what have you. But in, in my, uh, I'm from Prince of Wales Island, and you're seeing, you know, pretty low returns of sockeye. Mm. And that's really concerning to us, right? And, you know, we, we need to be aware. And it's funny because on the transboundary mines, of course, they're in Canada, but they flow, they flow into Alaskan waters. And pretty much politically, everybody, Republican, Democrat, we're all in alignment on this one because we know how um, valuable this resource is for everybody, for commercial fishermen, for subsistence users. And, uh, but the problem is, is getting through to the Canadian government. And, you know, there's a lot of efforts. Uh, the tribes are really taking, uh, some big steps in this work as well as forming, uh, I can't remember the acronym, what it, the acronym stands for. It's, uh, Southeast 
SEITC, which is a group made up of the tribes. And, you know, we're, we're trying to advocate for being able to have a say, you know, and, and concern there. So hopefully we make some real headway because, you know, we, we need to restore the habitat here in our own region. Mark, you know, one of the things I'm really uh, drawn to you about is your passion. You know, you are a very passionate person. You you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You know, you've started this uh, brand, Eva's Wild. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what you're trying to accomplish? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so really, it kind of originated with a need, like most brands or ideas come about from. Uh, and it really was back in 2015 when I was taking my first film around the country. We were we were showing it in screenings um, around the United States. And that was a, a road tour that was actually supported by Bristol-based commercial fishermen. Um, and one of the ideas we had during that was, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could connect these experiences together of not only going into a theater and sort of having this communal, almost like church-like feeling in the dark of watching an, an emotionally based storyline about these salmon we love. But what if you came out afterwards and you got to eat them? And, and so, you know, through my, uh, my, my friend, Elizabeth Herondine, who has been an absolute hero and a warrior for salmon through salmon state, which has been the leading, um, political and activist advocacy group here in, in Alaska. Uh, she's like, you know, let's feed people. And, and, uh, what if we connect those experiences together and ultimately then at the end of every screening, we'd, we'd set this up and people were asking one question every time it was the first question was, Holy smokes. Uh, I've just felt something I haven't felt in a long time. I felt some grief. Now I feel like some, um, some major motivation to do something to help protect salmon. What can I do to help? And honestly, at the time didn't have sort of a turnkey for that. It was like, well, definitely write your legislator, definitely give to your, your favorite NGO that are doing the best work on the ground to help cold water fisheries. And, and that was kind of it, you know, and people were like, well, I've done that what else can I do? And so we really pondered that and thought, what about tying these experiences together? Like we did at these screenings where people could eat salmon directly after the, after the screening and sort of in this sacramental almost way, you know, like communion almost take this salmon into you as an experience. Um, and so, you know, on a flight, I don't know why it's flights, flights and showers, <laughs> these ideas always pop into my head. Um, I started to do kind of a word jumble, uh, and the word save, save wild kept popping up, save the wild things we love. And I started mixing around the letters and I just flopped them and Ava's is the word save spelled backwards. And so I thought, what if we created a brand that created that experiential sort of sacramental idea we're, we're selling wild salmon from the world's most regenerative fishery in bristol bay alaska directly to people so they can take it into their home feed it to their families and then what if we kept moving the needle forward by producing more media and storytelling on a channel that literally allowed people to continue to watch at home and most importantly if we sort of self-taxed ourselves in the model that Patagonia has so beautifully pioneered and um, gave back uh, a portion of our profits directly to the indigenous-led efforts to protect the wild places we are sourcing our food and our stories from. And that's exactly what we're doing. I think that's incredible. You know, I think it's it's again putting your money where your mouth is giving back but i think you utilizing the mediums you do film podcasting you know you're bringing an awareness you know to something that's so important to us that you know everyday americans may not even understand i mean if you live in you know mid mid middle america sockeye salmon probably don't 
really register on you, right? Mm -hmm. But hopefully you see these films and you listen to your podcast and, and you can be motivated to care about something that really is very important nationally, very important to certainly Bristol Bay, but the state of Alaska. You know, tell me about your film series. Mm -hmm. What what brought you there? What, what's the arch? You know, you got this trilogy you're, you're finishing now. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I got to go back a little ways and um, kind of mention how I got into all this in the first place. And it comes, it really starts with that love for wild salmon in the first place. And even before I started guiding in Southeast Alaska, I worked in my college summers in Bristol Bay uh, as a foreman of a uh, salmon processing operation, uh, their, their freezer line actually. And I remember like, in those long, you know, like 16 to 19 hour shifts of being like, you know, this is a summer job and I'm just doing this thing. And how in the world is this possibly going to inform the rest of my life? Well, <laughs> apparently it <laughs> became a beacon of what I was going to loop back around to. But after that stint, I spent, I went, um, in 1997, I spent, um, upwards of 10 years, uh, as a fishing guide. Uh, in Southeast here in Tlingit Ani, uh, in a place called Yes Bay at Yes Bay Lodge. And I lived out there in the wintertime. It was only accessed by, air, you know, float plane. So I spent two winters out there. And that kind of cemented the deal about my complete love, reverence, reverence and, you know, uh, strange, complete uh, addiction to salmon, honestly. Um and then I met my wife in 2003 and fell in love in another way. And uh, it became apparent to me that like guiding for five months of the year was not going to continue uh, if I wanted to, you know, uh, seal the deal with uh, my wife. And and so I moved back down to Seattle full time and um, I had been I'd gone to film school in Vancouver Film School. Um, I started a, a career in acting, actually. And then um been always been writing my whole life and decided that, um, it was time to kind of marry these things together. So I started writing and directing brand films and producing brand films for folks, you know, the local folks in town, like Starbucks and, um, T-Mobile and Boeing. And, um, of course, my, a lot of Microsoft. And, um, it was one day I did this for some time and I built a production company called August Island pictures. And then one day in 2011, I was on a flight down to uh, California to film a commercial for an ambulance company, which, you know, is like not, not exactly what I'd imagined when I was um, setting out to tell stories. But I was reading this book called Mountain in the Clouds by Bruce Brown, which is this um, tome really for uh, this, the loss of salmon in the Pacific Northwest. And right in the beginning of the book, in the foreword of the book, I ran across the name of a, an attorney that was a friend of our family. And for whatever reason, the visually seeing that name snapped these synapses in my brain. And it, uh, it immediately snapped me to the name of another attorney, a friend of our family named Russ Bush. Russ was the attorney for the Elwha people for <laughs> 40 years. And he spent his entire career working to remove those dams out of the Elwha on behalf of the Elwha people. And I knew in that this all happened in the span of about, you know, 0.1 second. And I knew that Russ had stage four glioblastoma, brain cancer, and that he may or may not actually get to see those dams come out with his own eyes. And I thought, I got to go film him. I have to go film his story before he passes. And so that was on a Friday. Tuesday of the next week, I had cobbled together a little camera kit and I started my first interview of three with Russ, who became a dear friend and mentor to me. And he did, in fact, get to see those two salmon blocking dams come out with his own eyes before he passed away in April of 2012. And that ultimately became the baseline for my first film, The Breach, which in essence is a kind of a big picture love story for wild salmon writ large, kind of looking at the whole history across the world and then coming clear to the Pacific Northwest and now Alaska. And ultimately that film 
really was like, what does it cost to restore systems that have been screwed up, you know, like the Elwha? And of course, we talked about that. A lot of money, many, many years, and it almost didn't happen at all. It was a stroke of luck that it did. And then we compared and contrasted that versus a place like Bristol Bay that's perfect still the way that it is. The cost, the opportunity cost of losing that because we just listened to a mining company say, hey, we got this. This time it'll be different. We'll be fine. And 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 based in love, that story looked at the, you know, through the lens of this comparison of restoration versus protection. So that was the first film. And then, of course, you know a little bit about my story with the second film. Yeah. The Wild. Yeah, go ahead and sure. tell yeah. about The Wild. Well, yeah, I was <laughs> I was getting tired of hearing my own voice. But <laughs> well, you know, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an interlude. So The Breach is actually where you and I met, right? That's right. So you came to Kassan and you were filming. Uh, you showed up on my doorstep, darkened doorstep. <laughs> oh, um, I think you were probably a little surprised about how remote Kassan was on Prince of Wales. And a little bit, a little bit. Showed up late and... Um, so I actually fed you some salmon. I think, uh, you got the treat of, uh, smoked salmon and pilot bread. You, look, you're, you're underselling this experience. This, uh, this was maybe it's cause I was so damn hungry. Um, <laughs> and yes, we completely underestimated what it would take to get down the dirt road, to get to Kassan and film the whale house and the incredible, I mean, one of the most incredible things I've seen in my life, yeah. walking through the forest and totems just emerge and yeah. appear. You, you know, living in Kassan my entire life, basically growing up there, I still get goosebumps. <laughs> you know, you walk out the trail, it's like going through time. It is. And yeah, I, and I, I'm really proud of that. And I always love when people come and experience that. It, I, I don't really even know how to articulate it properly, but the closest word I can come up with is mystical. It yeah. was, a, I, I've used that same term. Yeah, I have. It was yeah. a spiritual experience yep. and it was quiet. And you're right. It was right at that sort of Alpen glow time of day. Cause we were so damn late getting down there. And then this is, a, <laughs> I will never forget this. The whole experience I won't forget, but that I remember somehow my phone was working and I was able to text you. I don't know how, but it worked. Yeah. And I was like, uh, Hey Rick, is, is there a restaurant in Kassan <laughs> so he can grab some dinner? And you're like, ha ha, that's a good one. Just come to my house. <laughs> and so, yep, we came stumbling over and now it's dark and we're, we were going to do an interview with you and we had to figure out, set up an interview in your house at like nine or 10 at night. Yeah. And uh, I remember walking into the house and you're like back here. We, and we kind of walked up back to the kitchen, turned the corner and there you are. And you got your hand in a jar of mayonnaise and you're putting, putting together mayonnaise and salmon and onto pilot bread. And it was the best thing I'd ever eaten in my entire <laughs> life. And, and I think in part, because you gave that with complete love and compassion and you, you made this meal, like it was a gift. And, um, honestly, I don't know if I can repay that. That was just such an incredible gift and it set the tone for what we were trying to achieve out there. Um, we did do the interview and, you know, just to, you're, you don't appear in that film and it was not a function of anything else other than we did 75 interviews, I think, yeah. for the movie and we ended up using 22. Oh, trust me. It didn't affect my love for the movie. Uh, the movie is very powerful. It's, it really uh, pulls you in. It's Again, it's something I personally care about a great deal, mm -hmm. but I think even if you were just completely unaware it was such an eye opener. Uh, it's a beautiful film. I mean, and, you know, meeting you, you know, we, we've uh, maintained a friendship uh -huh. and, you know, uh, you have the Save What You Love podcast and had me on that. And that was that's actually what sparked my um, really cemented, I guess, the idea that I wanted to do a podcast of my own. Which um, is awesome. And I've listened to every episode so far. And um you know, honestly, there, there, we've got all kinds of things that connect us. Um, and one of them, you know, you just had an episode on, which was recovery. recovery. 
Yeah. That's right. That's a shared experience for you and I. Yes, it is. Um, you know, I've got 19 years clean, wow. you know, and off drugs. And you've uh, got, what, five and a half? Five and a half. Years yeah. My, on my drug of choice was alcohol. And um, yeah, in, um, in October of 22 this year, it'll, it'll be five and a half years. And um, it's a miracle, man. I'm grateful every day I wake up and uh, it's a miracle to be connected in this way um, because it was like this one thing that I held on to that I thought was the medicine that allowed me to move through the world. And I had convinced myself of this story that it made me better somehow, like I, I could speak better or perform better or, I, you know, it, it shed that anxiety that I'd always felt since I was a kid. Um, I used it to celebrate. I used it to grieve. I used it for all these things. And um, until I, I relied completely on it hmm. to take me through everything in life. And, for, and in my case, my bottom was reached in 2016 um, due to grief. It was grief that led me down underwater, and uh, and this, as the story went, um, in the span of four days in November 2016, uh, my grandma, who was a soul mate to me, Dorothy, went into hospice. My mom was diagnosed with cancer the next day. Ooh. The day after that, we elected a new president in the United States in 2016, uh, which for me. Um, there's no political rantings here that are even applicable to this conversation. But when Donald Trump was elected, um, just by virtue of what he had been talking about, I knew that Bristol Bay would likely be back on the open market. Um, it was enjoying some protections at the time through the Obama administration's EPA. And um, that's exactly what happened. And it did go back up basically to be, um, examined again, uh, for production. And anyway, all this stuff in the span of four days, um, led me down a path where what I'd used as a, you know, for all the reasons I, I suggested, um, I used alcohol to just get through every day. And then my body became dependent on it. Yeah. And my mom got really sick in January of 2017. She almost died in, during chemo. Um, she got uh, pneumonia. And and then my grandma passed in April. And I drank long enough to get through that. But it was like this little one act of love through my two-year-old niece who wanted me to go to her brother's baseball game, his little league game. And I said, um, you know, I am – are we – Sorry, we can pause on this. Nope, we're good. And it was my two-year-old niece, Poppy, who asked me to go to her brother's baseball game. And I shut myself in the bathroom and drank and pondered it. And was like, I can't go to that game because I, I can't drink there. Like, what happens if I don't have access to this thing I need? So I lied and I told her I couldn't go because I had to work. And she was inconsolable. And wrapped her, she was wrapped her body around my chest and my, my wife had to kind of peel her off me and take her away. And I remember her driving away in the, I could see her face in the back of the car and she was crying. And, uh, it was then that I walked into the house and I called Swedish hospital in Ballard in Seattle. And I asked if they had a bed in detox and they did. And I went to my grandma's funeral, um, got through that. And then three days after that, I was, I was in detox and that began my journey. It's weird, the uh, parallels between you and I, uh, you know, I, I was, in, you know, in recovery at that time, but, uh, I remember landing in, uh, Seattle and my phone going off and, uh, got the word that my grandma died. Mm. <clears throat> And I got to my hotel and then I'm turning on the TV and, and the news and uh, Trump had won. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, 
for me, you know, and I, I hate to get political, but he really was a step backwards in my mind. And, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I believe in some decorum and honoring the office. And I, I never felt that he did. But um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, for me, when when I kind of hit bottom and realized like I needed to, you know, for me, it wasn't ever a celebratory thing doing the drugs. It was really about numbing myself mm. and not feeling the feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And one day I was driving uh, with my dad across Prince of Wales Island. And he looked at me and he said, so how long have you been on this stuff? Mm. And one of the things, if you know me, I don't lie. I just, I I can't stand lies. And for a split second, I almost lied to my dad. Mm. And to me, that was like, that was the worst thing, right? And so, yeah, that's when I I didn't get clean that day. I didn't, you know, I think it took me about 12 tries. Yeah. uh, You know, and uh, really for me, I didn't go to rehab. I didn't go um but i did go to counseling and i maintained that for many years and it helped me tremendously uh you know and you know addiction is real and it can happen to anybody it absolutely can it does not matter what socioeconomic branch of the human tree you come from uh it's everybody Everybody has a recovery story and it, it, you know, name your, name your addiction or, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we've, I mean, we talked last night over dinner about, you know, there's trauma that we have all had some sort of an experience with. And, um, ultimately, you know, I've heard this in the rooms. I, I'm a, a 12 step guy. Um, it's been my, uh, community and and it's it's been the bedrock of my recovery, um, but you you hear this phrase that it, it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. Yeah, and I believe that. You know, I, I did like I said to you, I I didn't do the twelve step or anything, but so many of like, the counseling and and my culture did seem very much about that. And to mm-hmm. me, it was that accountability piece, right? Absolutely. And and I, I talk to people about this, like nobody chooses to be an addict. Right. Like when you say, hey, you know what I'd like to try one day? I want to drop my life out to the bottom and, you know, put myself and my family through hell. No, Nobody says that. Uh, I, I've probably quoted her a million times now, but one of our elders, uh, Cheryl Fairbanks, she's an associate judge for Clinkett and Haida. She, she says this and it really resonates with me is be hard on the issue and not the person. Right. You know, and I think that's for me, I, I was very fortunate. I was honest and, and held myself accountable. So many people held me up. You know, and it's hard, you know, addiction, it takes a toll on families. It, it's, you know, abuse. It's all these things that happen, you know, whether it's mental, physical abuse, whatever, um, that it puts families through. But I was really fortunate to have people just hold me up and, and you know, check in on me and hold me accountable. And and um, it, that was probably my success in, in quitting and. But yeah, recovery is an ongoing thing. I've got 19 years and I tell you, I've known people who've had 20, 25 years and then they relapse. Well, it, look, you, you, you're exactly right. And I mean, we, we approach this in the, in the rooms, in the program, one day at a time. I have a reprieve that's contingent on my condition, my spiritual condition, my condition inside. And that means you can't like just forget about it. Uh, and, and, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm cured. It's not a cured thing. You don't get a diploma, you don't get a trophy. It's, it's one day at a time and you gotta, you gotta feed that thing. And you, you named it though. It's community. I mean, yeah. Whether that's within your tribe, within your immediate family, but you, you, I can't do it alone. I can't, I gotta have a community and I gotta check in with them. I gotta be accountable to them. And I got, you also said the word honest. I got to be brutally honest. Yeah. I think sometimes people probably get a little uncomfortable with my honesty because, <laughs> you know, I'm, 
kind of a high profile job and and all that and so but I, but I feel like I have to be I have to be honest with it I also want people to know recovery is possible that's right you know and I think there's a stigma out there that it's not mm-hmm. and it truly is you know we did the recovery episode with Jenny Brown and David Evenson and it uplifted me so much to hear their story their journeys me too you know and they shared in a completely honest way and you know i think that's what i owe to people is just to be really honest about it and you know i put a lot of work in you know counseling and um really just didn't like me Mm. and i put in enough work to where now i like me you know and i think that's something that was the hardest part yeah um i talk about um you know it gave me empathy I don't know that I was as empathetic as I am now. I still hold people accountable and I'm still pretty hard on them. But, you know, I also know it's a journey and, you know, give yourself the grace, you know, that to heal and to forgive. And, you know, with it comes forgiving others. But for me, the hardest was to forgive myself. Yes. You know, you know the, that episode was so strong, so full of life and it spoke to my heart immediately um and you there were so many things but the one thing that i remember just kind of jumped out at me was when you talked about that like your counselor was like hey here's a mirror can you say that you love yourself to to your mirror my counselor in in intensive outpatient which is what i did after detox and i did for a year and um she said the same thing and she, I couldn't, I couldn't say I love mm-hmm. myself. And that had been a years long, I don't know, maybe a lifetime thing. Um, and honestly, like all of the great traditions, you know, all of them, uh, indigenous or otherwise it, you, you've got to have a healthy respect for yourself. If you believe you're of this earth, this clay is of the same material that we're all made of, that all of our relations are made of. Why would I love myself, this clay, any less than I would you or yeah. my salmon cousins? Or, you know, it's it's really like this, almost like this lack of respect for the the, the entirety of the universe if I'm not saying I love myself. Well, you know, the old adage, you you can't love others if you don't love yourself, right? That's that's true. And that's something I had to work through in counseling and kind of one failed relationship after another and realizing, you know, how are you really going to love somebody if you don't love yourself? Mm. What do you bring to the table if you don't love yourself? Right. So, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's one I'm, I continually evolve and, you know, I've learned to give others and myself that grace. We're going to make mistakes. You know, I, you know, I always say when I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall forward. Yeah. You know, just keep moving forward. Well, one of the great afflictions, you know, uh, I, certainly the root, the root of my addiction and my, the, the behaviors and the, the things that have come out of those choices was, is fear and fear, fear is toxic. It kills. And, um, I think kind of to loop back around, you know, we started down this trail talking about the second film that I did the wild. Well, 50 days into recovery being sober, um, I had on my calendar, a, a shoot day to go up to back up to Bristol Bay and shoot a brand film for a friend of mine who was a commercial fisherman up there. And, uh, my wife, uh, my sponsor, my counselor were all like, are you sure you're ready to go up and do this and haul 12 cases of gear by yourself up into the wilderness essentially, and, you know, not be around a meeting and your support group. And I, you know, I thought about it a lot. I prayed on it and I was, you know, really meditating and reflecting on it. And ultimately I decided I wanted to be good to my word and do this thing. Um, the day it came to go, the time to go, I was at Seattle airport, SeaTac, and I almost pulled the ripcord and bailed. I, I was so scared. I, I literally had a panic attack at the airport. Like, I don't think I can do this. I can't do this. And I was having this existential crisis. 
And there somewhere in the back of my being in the recesses of my being, there was a still small little voice saying, go, go and just go doors will open. And, and that's exactly what happened. I went, I said, yes, despite all this crippling fear I had and literally at the airport in Dillingham, this guy I was supposed to interview and was going to have had no idea how to find him out there. Well, the fishing season had begun and communications were weird. It was Ole Olson. who's a kind of a legend out at Nishigak point. Um, I literally ran physically into him at the airport. And he said, come with me. I'll feed you. You can stay at my place. He gave me shelter like you did. He gave me shelter. He gave me sustenance. And Immediately, all the doors open. Somehow, I find my way out to the boat in the middle of the night, in the middle of the bay, uh, to be where I needed to be. And I didn't drink, and I didn't freak out, and um, and that became the basis of what was is now my second film, The Wild. And it that moment in time out there awakened something in me that had been dead for a long time. Um, and in doing this movie. We started putting all the pieces together of the, the footage. And in 2018, I started kind of writing the the plot line, if you will, if, if there can be one from the documentary. Um, and it just was falling flat. It was just I, kind of my voice was in there as a, as a narrator, but it was just like, this isn't ringing true. And so ultimately um, we decided, I, I thought, oh my God, I think I need to talk about what actually happened, which is my recovery. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I brought that idea to my co-creator and editor, Eric Frith, and I, and I brought it to my wife, Venka, and I talked about it with my sponsor and my creative team. And we gave it like three months of, of vetting to really decide like, you know, is this right? And is this, ultimately we said, yes, it is. And the reasons were three for for this were for three reasons, ultimately. One, because it's true, it's what actually happened. And that's pretty important in a documentary. Second part was it made for a better film. It yeah. really had a, a much more interesting and I think open portal for people to have an empathetic understanding of, of Bristol Bay, if they could put it through a human lens. And then the third part was, I, I mentioned it earlier before, my addict, said the same thing constantly that the guys who want to build pebble the pebble mine do which is this time it'll be different yeah don't worry we got the technology don't worry it'll be different this time we won't wipe out the salmon runs and we can go into all of the deleterious reasons that a, a you know giant open pit copper mine in the headwaters of a salmon system like bristol bay are a horrible idea but that was what really bound the thing together. Well, and it's funny you say that because that's what the folks who ran Mount Pauly said. Of course. And you those know? are the same folks, P.S., that would be building the tailings dam for Pebble. Yeah. So we know we know they're not good to their word there. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit. So, you know, you, you've done the films. Now you're doing this podcast, Save mm -hmm. What You Love, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, I love. Um, I've Thanks, really man. been pulled into it. You've, you know, it's funny how small our world is because you've interviewed some of the folks, uh, friends of mine, right? Uh, Colleen Echohawk and, mm -hmm. you know, Zach and others. So it's pretty neat, but tell me what motivated you to do that. Save what you love is at the core of, uh, it's in the title of the wild. The second film is how do you save what you love? It's asking that question. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the brand, the impact band we're creating with Ava's wild. And ultimately at the core of that is save what you love. And this became an extension of that. It really was just like, I want to talk to people like you, who are doing things big and small to protect the things they love. It could be your culture, your way of life, it could be the, your food systems, your, um, your communities, your, your farmlands, you know, but things when we are fragmented and honestly, as much as, um, our phones try to 
keep us together or, or connected, as they like to say, as the as the uh, social media companies like to say, it's really isolated us. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to have some sort of a dialogue, some sort of a forum to connect with people that are doing things big and small. It doesn't. You don't have to be Yvonne Chouinard or uh, or Chaya Ish. You, you you can be doing something in your community that is meaningful to you. Uh, it was just starting a recycling program, or you know, protecting your your farmlands that have been in your family forever, and um, ultimately lift each other up in telling those stories. So it's very same kind of root tap root that you have with with your show here. Yeah, that that was really one of. The- the things that I love doing is holding people up. I like celebrating people. Me too. You know, um, with opening the box of knowledge, the whole point is to have conversations with people who are doing cool things. Yep. And it kind of like you said, big or small, whether they're, you know, um, on a TV show or they're doing local theater or whatever it might be, or, you know, making documentaries to save Bristol Bay. You know, I, I just want to have conversations with really cool people. Um, really, uh, you know, I thought it was funny. You, Sam, our sound guy, our engineer, you, you compared him to like Paul uh, on uh, the David Letterman show, right? And I love working with him, uh, Kachung, Steve Blanchett. Just love working with him. And he's he's a busy guy. He's out there in the world conquering himself. And, uh, you know, right now they're in Dillingham with his band, Bumyao, um, doing cool things. So when he's here, he's here. And, and that's great. But he's out there affecting change, too. And so this is what it's all about, is having very cool conversations with cool people. Um yeah. And uh, look, you, you're doing a great job. Like it's, it's amazing. I love the dynamic and I know you're just starting out. So it's, you're going to like, I, I'm still learning as I go every day too. Um, it's, uh, it's fantastic. You're a great host. Uh, Sam's kicking ass and I just love, love what you're doing. Super stoked to be a part of this. And, uh, you know, I guess to wrap up my section of this, like, um, later today, we're going to do an interview on camera with you, we get to <laughs> the rare opportunity in one day to switch the, the mics, uh, on each other. And, um, and ultimately that is for what will be the third film in this trilogy. And we're calling it the turn. So am I going to make this one? <laughs> or pretty, the cutting room floor. Pretty sure. I'll have a word with the producer director <laughs> on this one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it's fantastic. And, uh, just love doing this and, you know, brother, um, I say brother and mean it, you know, you're, you're doing things that matter, things that inspire. And, you know, usually I ask people what motivates them. I think this whole episode was you saying what motivates you. Awesome. So thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's my, my pleasure, brother. And, um, we just, uh, keep marching one step at a time. And so glad to be on this journey with you. Cheese.